want to invite our children uh, up through third grade to uh, Children's Church if they're interested in going. Uh, teacher will meet you in the back. Just an age-appropriate setting where they get to hear the scriptures um, for them. Before I start the sermon, there's uh, something that I feel like we need to address um, that's happening in our country um, that I had hoped wouldn't, and that is the, um, the problems that we've seen in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, a group of uh, people marched on the town square to protest the removal of a Confederate soldier memorial, and they showed up at night with torches, which fairly reminiscent of some other thoughts, and the end, they were doing Nazi salutes around this statue. Next day, um, Confederate flags, Nazi flags were in the, uh, in the park. And when violence erupted, it was horrific. Um, I think the only appropriate word for it is terrorism. A car charged into a group of people, slammed into cars, pinned one woman between two cars, and so far I believe the death toll is now four people and at least 30 injured. What I want us to hear is that there is no place for racism in biblical Christianity. The idea that some certain people are less than we are is foreign, it's alien to Christianity. It has no, no place in biblical Christianity. And I just wanna read a handful of scriptures to remind us of what this is. In the beginning, when God made man, man and woman, he said, so God created him in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Humanity is created in God's image. And then moving forward a little bit, the sons of Noah were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. We come from one family, all of us. And then in Acts, Paul kind of comments on this. He said, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. We have one common family. Paul later says, for this reason, I bow my knees before God the Father, from whom every family in earth and on heaven is named. We have a commonality. We're together in this. Isaiah prophesied this before the New Testament was written. He said, the Lord blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Egypt, Assyria, and Israel are all considered God's people. There's, there's no distinction, no racism, no division there. And in the end, this is what it looks like. Revelation chapter 7 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from every tribe and people and language, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out loud with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What we're going to hear this morning is a dispute arose among them with regard to who was the greatest. And Jesus' response is, not so with you. That extends beyond just who's the greatest in, in the church to who's the greatest of all the races. There's one race. Adam's fallen race. Adam's helpless race. And we're all part of it. So as we look at what's going on in Virginia, look at the faces these aren't old folks who are just fighting the, the Civil War one more time before they die or, or fighting the, the racism from the 50s one more time before they die. These were young men in their 20s 
Racism has not gone away in this country. It's still here. It's still a problem. And the church must address it. We can't have divisions among people like this. It makes no sense. As a matter of fact, I saw a, a post at the Gospel Coalition, and it said, if you don't like diversity, you're not going to like heaven. <laughs> what we just heard in, Act, or in uh, Revelation 7, if you think that your race is superior, you are not going to be happy standing in heaven because you're going to be rubbing elbows with people who don't look like you. So the man who wrote the article, he says, if you don't like diversity, you are going to hate heaven. It's the one place where no one will fight over whose cultural expressions are best suited for God's work. And at the throne of the resurrected Jewish carpenter, Peter and Paul will be standing side by side, surrounded by a radiant sea of people from every tribe, tongue, crying out in perfect harmony. Pray against racism. We have to fight this. This is, this is unacceptable. At this point in history, we thought in the 50s and the 60s with the civil rights movement, we had it licked. But what happens is when those things get pushed back into the dark, they fester. They don't go away. I heard an interview with a, a, a pastor from um, Grand Rapids, I think it was, and he said, sin doesn't just fade. It festers. That's why these things need to be brought out into the open and addressed with biblical truth, with gospel truth, to say no more. That, that can't be. So before we start the sermon, and fortunately it will kind of touch on some of this because it is about who's the greatest and, and how do you jockey for position, let's pray for peace in our country. Lord, I, I think of, um, of Daniel praying that he, uh, for the sins of his people, the sins of his father, um, Father, for Isaiah telling you, I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips for Nehemiah praying to you and acknowledging the, the faults of his forefathers. And so, Lord, I want to pray and acknowledge the faults of our forefathers. Lord, this nation was founded with the promise of liberty and justice for all on the backs of black slaves. And then when we fought a civil war to end it, Lord, we maintained it in other ways, economic and cultural ways, keeping black brothers and sisters at arm's length. And then when we had the civil rights movement in the 60s, there was hope. But Lord, not much has changed since then. Father, I confess that the sins of our nation as relates to race relations with each other. Lord, we can't seem to get along. And I pray, Lord, that, the only, that you would heal this. The only, the only healing balm for any of this, the only salve that will make it go away is the truth of the gospel that we can look somebody in the eye who doesn't look anything like us and say, this is a brother and sister in Jesus Christ for whom he shed his blood. And surely the hope that we see in the church of unity could spread. Lord, we pray for the man who ran down protesters, innocent protesters. Lord, we pray that he would be brought to justice. He has been arrested. If they've got the right man, Lord, we pray that he would be convicted. And with this kind of premeditated homicide, the only correct biblical solution is execution. Lord, that's in the hands of the state. But what's still in our hands, what we can still address is, Lord, would you lead him between now and then to salvation? Would you lead him to see that he has wronged many people, that his hatred has, has stifled him, 
and is threatening to condemn him to hell for eternity. Lord, bring him to salvation, we pray. And those who are in the square flashing a Nazi salute as if that's a good thing, Lord, we pray for repentance, that it would break out among them. Lord, would you help them to see the error of their ways, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ at which the foot of the throne is crowded with people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, continent, culture, ethnic background, economic background. Lord, would, would you cause them to see that as a glorious thing? And Father, I pray for us. We've, we're on the other side of the country from what happened, and we feel cut off from it. But Lord, I pray that you would prick our hearts when we see racism, when we hear people spoken of poorly because of who they are. Lord, I pray that you would remind us all that we are Adam's broken race, all of us, and that the gospel can go to each one. Have mercy on our nation, we pray, and on us. Now, Lord, as we approach your word, it's important for us to hear what you have to say, to pray earnestly for the evils in the world, and to recognize that we're called to face them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, would you be with us now as we open your word? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and our hearts to receive what you have to say, to understand what you're teaching us, and to lead us in obedience? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, where we're at in Luke is we're in the final week. And if you remember last week, I said that the uh, Last Supper was really the first domino in a series of events that's going to lead to Jesus' execution his burial, and his resurrection, that he went into that Last Supper intentional. He was not afraid of knocking that first domino over. He was ready to go. And now what we're hitting is this section that, that Paul read for us this morning. It's, it's Jesus' final discourse, his final batch of teaching to his apostles before he's arrested and executed. And what happens in this is this part that begins with the, the dispute about who's the greatest Luke rearranged it. In other Gospels, it's in different places. But Luke brings it here. And I think he brings it here for a particular reason. As we enter into Holy Week, as we enter into Jesus' execution, what we have to see is who really is the greatest. It's really important for us to see that. And the contrast between this Messiah who rode, in on an, uh, rode into Jerusalem and is going to be executed and the messianic ideal of this reigning king who's going to come in and kick out the bad guys, it's, it's highly, there's a huge contrast there. So it's really important that we see this question of who's the greatest. What we're going to learn today is we're going to see what true greatness really is. And so as we look at this, we're going to see three things. We're going to see a pattern for true greatness. We're going to see the perils of gaining greatness. And in the end, we're going to see the path to kingdom greatness. So that's how this is going to work, is, is this idea of greatness. So the section begins, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. Does that sound foreign to anybody? Has your heart never wondered if I'm better than that other person, or if I, you know, people like me more, or if I sing better, or whatever it is? Don't, don't we have at least some inclination to do that same thing, to look at others and say, well, I think I'm better than they are. I may not be perfect, but I'm better than them. So what's happening is the disciples now have heard that Jesus is going to come in his kingdom. His kingdom will come. He said, there's a new covenant in my blood. And so when they hear kingdom, what they think of is, well, what's my part in that? Which office do I get to hold? Where do I get to sit? What's my place going to be? 
So they're arguing amongst themselves with Jesus Christ standing there. They're arguing amongst themselves which one of them is the greatest. And don't you dare say that I would never do that. Because <laughs> you know, just like me, I definitely would. I would be right there with them. This really opens up, this is what this whole section is about. And what's kind of cool as we go through this is we're going to see a lot of Jesus' other teachings fold into this. I think that's why um, Luke brings it here as kind of a capstone for this. So they start arguing which one of them is the greatest. And Jesus answers them. And his answer is going to start with a negative example and then give them a positive example. So he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, you guys don't ever pursue greatness. What are you thinking? That's not what you're supposed to do. He doesn't condemn them for pursuing greatness. Their problem is not pursuing greatness. Our problem, when we want to be better, is not that we were pursuing greatness. That's not a bad thing. The problem is the definition of what greatness really is. So he, he looks to a negative example. He says, let me explain to you what Greatness is not. And here's the best example I've got, the king of the Gentiles. So all of these kings, all of these rulers, they exercise lordship over the nations. They rule over them with an iron fist. They're the guys in charge. And the whole nation is there to serve them. Ever seen um, Emperor's New Groove? The emperor, they say to the emperor, you know, you're acting like this is all about you. And he goes, yeah, me, duh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what emperors do is, yeah, it's about me. What, do you, what, did you miss the memo or something? So he says, look at that. That's an example of not how, how not to be great. Now, the second part, it's translated differently in different uh, versions. It says, and those in authority over them are called benefactors or call themselves benefactors. And so um, to kind of peel that back a little bit, that word for benefactors is really cool. This is the only place in the New Testament that it appears. But what it is, is it, the first part is the prefix you, which is good. Like a, a eulogy is a good word. Um, so a you is the first part. And then the second part is argon, which is work. So when you put those together, they call themselves good workers. That's why benefactors is a good way to translate it, is they do good works for other people. They, aren't we here to do good works for you? And so the form of that word could be either passive, are called, or it could be what's called a middle voice. We don't really have that so much, but a middle voice has this reflective element where it kind of comes back to itself. So it could be either way. There's no spelling difference between those two versions of the word. I think the best way to translate it, though, is call themselves. And, and here's why. When we get a little further into it, you'll see what's going on. But this is, this is what these, these tyrants, these kings are doing, is they're ruling over the nations, and they call themselves benefactors. It's good for me to be in charge. Really, you're better off with me in charge. Now, the term benefactors was used of princes and highly regarded people. It was, it was actually a term of endearment, but tyrants would apply it to themselves as well. And so he says, here's, here's the picture. This is what false greatness looks like. These people are ruling over folks. They're taking everything. They're, they're accumulating it for themselves, and they call themselves the good guys. Now, we don't have kings, right? There's only a few places on earth that have kings, so this problem's over, right? It's gone. Um, because, you know, communism came along and they kicked out all the greedy people. And it was all run by the common person, right? They had the, the communist uh, committees that would get together and it was all the people, and there were no greedy people there, right? Guess where all the greedy people went? 
into the communist committees and they, they gathered and next thing you know, you've got Stalin. So, but we're smarter than that. We've got democracy, right? Where the people make all the decisions and, and we elect our leaders and there can't be anybody who's a tyrant and yeah, that's, that's not quite it either. The problem is not kings. The problem is people who really like being in charge. People who really like authority who really think that they are benefactors. It is good for me to rule your life and tell you exactly how you do everything and take half of what you get. It, it's not a new problem. It's not anything that, that is gonna go away anytime soon. We just have to live with it and understand what it's like. So remember back when Israel demanded a king. They had been under judges for a long time, didn't work out too well, but they were under judges and then they went to Samuel the prophet and they say, man, we want a king who's going to lead us in and out just like the, other, the nations around us. Well, that's probably not a good measurement, but okay. And God s tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. So tell them this, this is what a king is going to do for you. And what he told them was the king is going to take the best of you, what you have. He's going to take the best of your sons. He's going to demand the best of everything so that he can accumulate it to himself so that he can rule over you. And the people went, that's good. We're all right with that. We'll take it. That didn't change a thing. Saul didn't work out so well. David takes the throne, reunites the kingdom. Things look much better. His son Solomon takes the throne at the peak of the kingdom, and he's, he's asked God for more wisdom. And things are going great until he marries, what was it, 800 wives and starts worshiping false gods. And then God says, the kingdom is going to be split. It's going to be taken from your hands, but not from you, from your son. So the people after Solomon's death come to the new king and they say, hey, lighten the burden. Your, your father built the kingdom. He built the temple. He built the houses. He did all this wonderful stuff. Now, now give us rest. And he compares notes with his young fellas and he comes back and he says, hey, you, you know what? My dad beat you with ropes. I'm going to beat you with scorpions. Get back to work. That's, that's the kind of person that Jesus is talking about here. The tyrants. The people who think that they are entitled to all of this stuff. And that doesn't go away. It's, a, it's, a, it's what we live with on a regular basis. So he says, look to those people, and you can find them now. You can find them today. Look to those people and don't be like those. That's not greatness. That isn't what greatness looks like. So what he tells them instead is he says, but not so with you. So this is the contrast. He says, that's what they're like. That's what they think greatness is, not you. If you're my disciples, let me define for you what greatness is really going to look like. And so he brings it back and he says, rather, instead of that, do this. Instead of accumulating power and wealth and fame and, and uh, strength for yourself, do this instead. Rather, let the greatest among you be as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. That, that greatest and uh, youngest, the two words you'll know. Greatest is mega and youngest is neo. Two Greek words that we're familiar with. What does he mean by youngest? Well, what he's getting at here is if you want to be truly great, you've got to be like these younger folks. Now, in that context, young folks got the dirt jobs. They got the menial work. The people who had survived long enough had accumulated a lot of wisdom, a lot of skills, and so they got the more important jobs. But when it came to slopping the pigs, mopping the floor, whatever it was, that went to the young. You, you do that for a long time, and once you've learned how to do that, then we'll bring you into other positions of authority. But you've got to work your way up. 
22 years in the military, that's the way it works. <laughs> You're the new guy, great, mop buckets over there, you go do that. When, when you've done that for a while, then we'll start introducing you to more responsible work. What he's saying is, if you want to be the greatest, if you really want to ascend to the height of authority and position of ruling in the kingdom of God, mop buckets over there. And didn't he do that in the Last Supper? Do you remember what he said in the Last Supper? He told Peter and John, two guys who were going to lead his church, go prepare the room for the Last Supper. He was preparing them to lead by serving. That's what he was calling them to. So that's what he means when he says, um, and the leader as the one who serves. So true greatness in the kingdom of God does not look like the rock star standing in front. That's not me. Um, I'm not a rock star. It doesn't look like the, the face up front. What it looks like is the person who serves, the person who takes care. That's the person who's going to be the greatest. Now, we're called into different positions in this, in this kingdom as, as God is calling us. We're, we're called to do different things. And what we need to see is that the ones who are going to be the greatest are the ones who you probably don't even notice because they quietly and they humbly serve. So when Jesus doesn't correct them and say, don't be great, what he does say is, be great this way. Be great by being the least, by serving others. And then here's the example. Here, here's the, the picture of true greatness. The, you want to measure yourself to see how you're doing? Here's, Jesus gives you the measurement. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. So they're, they're at the Last Supper. They haven't left the Last Supper as far as we can tell. So they're all reclining at table. And Jesus says, now, who's greater, the one that reclines at table or the one who serves? And they all kind of look down at their, their seat and they're like, uh, I'm reclining at table. He says, but look, I came as a servant. And by the way, Jesus is reclining at table with them at this point. But he says, look, I came as a servant. And I'm the master are you greater than me because you're sitting at the table? So if you want to measure yourself, if, if you start getting the idea of these delusions of grandeur, measure yourself against Jesus Christ, who existed in the form of God. There was never a time when the Son of God didn't exist. He eternally is begotten of the Father. The second person of the Trinity has existed for eternity. He was in heaven Surrounded by angels who daily, who moment by moment announced his holiness, his glory, his power, his majesty, everything he was worth. And he takes on to that humanity the form of a servant. And he humbled himself. He came down to earth in the form of a, a servant as a man. And, and did he come storming into Jerusalem as the rightful king who he should be? He rode in on a donkey. The paradox of that is, is startling. He rode in to Jerusalem. That's what kings do. They ride into the cities that they're going to conquer. But kings ride in on war horses. Jesus rides in not just on a donkey, but the foal of a donkey. He must have looked ridiculous. Can you imagine that little thing keeping its legs moving? He was probably bouncing around. What you see is this majestic king riding into Jerusalem in the most humble way possible. He is both the exalted king and the humble servant, all in one. How are you doing? How do you measure up? 
He's the standard. So he says, look, you're sitting at the table, and that's okay, but don't forget what it means that I'm here with you as a servant. So that's that picture of what true greatness looks like. That's the pattern. So this is, this is what we should be looking for in ourselves. So then the next question is, um, oh, I'm sorry, there's, there's one last little section. He says um, in verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What on earth is that about? He's just told them, don't be like these rulers of the kingdoms, and then he turns around and says, you're going to sit on thrones and judge Israel. It sounds like it's the exact opposite of what's going on. Actually, what I think he's doing here is, is he's taking the parable. Right after the, the, when he met Zacchaeus, he told a parable about a man who was sent off to a far country to gain a kingdom and then to come back. And you remember, he left servants, and he, he gave them minas, um, not the bird, but the coin, and he said, invest this. And as they come back and they report what they've done, they said that they've invested that miner, they've invested that coin. The ones who did really well, he says, you, you, you were given one, you've got 10, I put you in charge of 10 cities. You had one and you've got five, I put you in charge of five cities. I think what Jesus is doing is picking up that parable and applying it here. And what he's telling them is, you've stayed with me in my trials. I can't imagine what Judas is thinking at this point. I wish we had a snapshot of Judas's face at that moment because he's not going to be sticking with Jesus in his trials. He's going to cause his trials. But he's tell telling the other ones, you stuck with me in my trials. You're not going to be greater than your master. You will go through trials as you pursue kingdom greatness. Trials are part of it. But you stuck with me through it. And as my father is assigned to me a kingdom, so I assign to you a kingdom. So now remember what Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God is. It's not a chunk of real estate. It's not a castle. It's not a bunch of people to rule over. It is an extension of God's authority, his rule over people. The increasing, encroaching, perfect uh, will of God executed throughout the world. What he's saying is, I have received that, and now I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities because you stuck with me in my trials. You've achieved, you, you are now heading toward kingdom greatness, and I'm going to show you what that's going to look like. So that's what he's getting at. And he says, sitting on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, I think we tend to think somebody sitting on a throne with a black robe and a gavel saying, guilty, innocent. I think what he's getting at here is, is judging as in the judges, in the book of Judges, which was hearing legal debates, but also leading and ruling. So in the resurrection, or not in the resurrection, in, in the, the millennial kingdom, before Jesus uh, establishes the new heavens and the new earth, he will return with his saints and will rule on the earth. And what he's promising the disciples here is, you're going to be ruling with me, and I'm going to put you in charge of different places on the earth. You have that authority. That's what it means when you achieve kingdom greatness, is, is you don't pursue that power and that authority and accumulating to yourselves, and yet what do you get in the end? You get 10 cities. It's a blessing you can't lose. So that's the pattern for greatness and the promise of greatness. The next part he brings up is the perils of seeking kingdom greatness. So this is the danger of it. When, when you start moving in that direction, you draw somebody's attention. And so here's what happens next. After announcing this, he looks over and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you 
that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times. When we start heading in that direction of kingdom greatness, it draws somebody's attention. Satan is not happy about this. He would rather have us be full of ourselves, seeking our own greatness, doing great things for ourselves, accumulating things. So what Jesus is saying is, look, Satan is already heading for you, Peter. He's already demanded you. Satan has already got one, hasn't he? We heard a couple weeks ago that he, he entered um, Judas. And now Satan is back at the throne saying, well, yeah, I got that one. How about Peter? I bet he won't make it. And so Satan demands to have Peter. He doesn't ask politely. He doesn't petition. He doesn't do a write-in campaign. He demands, give me that one and see if he sticks with you. So that's the peril of what it means to pursue this greatness, is you're going to draw opposition. It doesn't look the way the world thinks it should look. It doesn't look like what Satan wants you to be doing. And so we're going to draw fire. But the great thing about this is in the midst of that, we have a huge promise. Jesus said, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What Peter is going to face in these coming, this, this coming few days is going to be horrific. It's going to be so much psychological and emotional pressure on him that his faith should crumble. But Jesus says, it won't fail because I prayed for you. Not because you're smart enough, not because you're clever enough, but because I have prayed for you. Your faith will not fail. But look what, he, look what that means. He tells him he's going to deny him. He's going to deny that he knows him. In faith. His faith hasn't failed at that point. Peter is going to be standing at the gate, and a, a servant girl is going to come and startle him so much. Big fisherman, tough guy, Peter gets startled by a little girl at a gate. So much that he says, I, I don't know him. In faith. Uh, a while ago, we were at the Huntington, uh, I think it was the Huntington uh, um, Museum down in Pasadena. And I stopped and I stared at this one picture. It was Peter at the gate being threatened. So the young servant girl is facing him. Peter's in the center. And then there's a couple of guys with military stuff looking over him. And you see this startled look on Peter's face. As I sat there and stared at that painting for about five, five or 10 minutes, after staring at it for a while, suddenly I realized, oh my gosh, his halo is there. But I didn't see it for about, I'd say, a good two minutes before it actually appeared. It was so thin and so light. It was just barely present. I don't know how the guy painted it. He, he must have had just like one hair that he did it with. And I thought, man, isn't that a perfect picture of what this is? Peter, your faith is not going to fail, but it's going to be one hair thin. But that's sufficient. That's enough. So even after you've denied me three times, Peter, the good news, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, you're going you're gonna to fall horribly. You're going to make a big mistake. And when we see what happens, Peter runs off and weeps bitterly because of what he's done. But Jesus says, when you turn, I know you're coming back because I've prayed for your faith. 
I know you're not deserting me. I know you're going to deny me, but that's not the end for you, Peter. When you've turned, practice kingdom greatness. Serve your brothers. Strengthen them. Tell them about your experience. What happened to you in that moment? You doubted. You were terrified. You were scared. The Messiah was dying. How did that fit? Use that brokenness to strengthen your brothers. This is what happens when we pursue greatness in the kingdom of God. Is we tend to think greatness, my strength will be perfect. I will just quote scriptures at everybody. It's going to be wonderful. When the truth is, sometimes it gets hair thin. And your your faith is just hanging barely even present. And you're going, Lord, help. And Jesus looks at you and says, I have prayed for you. When you turned, strengthen your brothers. So this is part of that kingdom greatness is if you see somebody else in in fellowship struggling and having a hard time, do you look at them and click your tongue and roll your eyes and go, buckle up, buttercup. Get strong, man. No, you look at them and you go, been there. Jesus is still real. Pray with me. That's kingdom greatness. Not thumping them on the head and telling them to get going. Kingdom greatness looks like that. So this is the threat of pursuing that kingdom greatness is you draw some attention. You draw some opposition. The world opposes it. It wants great to look like Caesar. Satan hates it because it means you're going to rely more on Jesus, so he's going to do everything he can for it. And our flesh is kind of caught between the two and just keeps going, but I don't want to be simple and humble and serve other people. I want to be served. So We've got this war going on with us. But don't forget, in the middle of it, Jesus promised, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You have a wonderful Savior, even in your weakest times. So pursue kingdom greatness in light of that. And then the last section is the pathway to kingdom greatness. So how do we get from where we are now to where, we, where Jesus wants us to go? How do we follow our master through this? So Jesus said to him, he looks at his disciples, he says, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise a knapsack. And the one who has no sword, sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what, um, and they said, uh, oh, I'm sorry. So for what is written about me has fulfillment. And they said, look, we have two swords. And he said, it is enough. So Jesus is looking back to chapter 10 when he sent the 72 out. He, he called the 72 together and he gave them this commission to go out into the, the uh, cities of Jerusalem and preach the good news. And he said, don't take anything with you. In other words, you've shown up to hear me, now just leave. Don't go home and buy anything or pick anything up. Just go and see what happens. And that was kind of that, that first step in his discipleship process of how he was leading them. He said, will you do this and trust me and see what happens? And so they would go out and they preach the gospel and they come back and they're like, it's amazing. We didn't lose a thing. You know, look around. Nobody starved to death. 
We didn't have anything, and, and, and Lord, you just opened doors for us the whole way. Now, when I preached on that, I said, that's not normal. That's not typical of, of missions. That's not the standard by which all missions are done. It happens that way, and, and two people who did that was George Mueller and uh, Hudson Taylor, who, who ministered that way. They just never asked for anything. They went out and did it, and God provided. But there's a whole bunch of other folks who did. So the book of Acts, Paul's a tent maker. He has a job. He goes into a city and he, he raises his own money. Missionaries throughout the world have relied on sending churches to, to support them. So that's not standard. And here's the example where Jesus says, this isn't going to be the way that missions are done. Now, wouldn't you have a money bag, you take it. When you have an absent, you take it. You're going to be sent out. Remember the parable about receiving the kingdom? The man went to a far country. He's returned, and now he's sending his disciples out to a far country. He's telling them, go to the ends of the world and take a knapsack and take a money bag and be prepared for the mission because it's going to be hard. This, this is the way that you're going to gain kingdom greatness is by going out in difficult and trying places. Okay, everybody, I know the question is, what about the sword? If you're not asking that question, ask that question. What is with the sword? Jesus says, um, if you don't have a sword, sell a cloak and buy one. Now, there's a whole bunch of things that we need to understand as we go into this, this issue of the sword. Um, when Peter misunderstands that, grabs his sword and whacks off the high priest's servant's ear, Jesus rebukes him for it. He says, that's not what I meant. And he has to stick the ear back on. So he's like, Don't, that's not what I meant by that. And I think that's what happens at the end. They say, look, we got two. And he says, it is enough. Not they are enough. You got two, that's good. For 12, two swords ought to do you. He says, it is enough. And, and there's a sense where this may just be his exasperation. You guys are not getting it. It's enough. We're done talking about it. When you look through the book of Acts, they face horrible persecution. Do they take up arms? Never once. They submit to beatings. They submit to oppression. So then what is with the sword? If it doesn't mean that we you know, should be packing iron when we go on a mission trip or something, what does it mean? Well, I think what it's a picture of is, is it's this picture of preparation and readiness. You have to have the sword in order to go out. It's, it's dangerous even in, in Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It's still dangerous to travel on these roads. And so you need to be prepared. And I think that fits with what he's told them so far is take a knapsack, take money, get a sword, be ready, have things at hand so that you can go, um, not lop off people's ears. So all of this fits together. The thing that ties it all together is the part I skipped over. Um, right in the middle, he says, for I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. So here's again that issue of kingdom greatness. What Jesus quotes here is Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. What's Isaiah refer referred to? Do you, do you remember the title we usually give that section? The suffering 
servant. Hasn't Jesus just been talking about suffering and serving? You're with me in my trials. And now the, the quote that he uses is the suffering servant. And he says that he will be numbered amongst the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. Peter, you're going to fall, but I've borne your sin. Peter, you're going to deny me before the cock crows, but I have borne your sin. I have carried away your transgressions because I'm the suffering servant. Come and follow me. So that's what ties this, this issue of them going out, being sent out together, is that they are following in the footsteps of the suffering servant. They're going to go out and serve the nations. They're going to go out and bring the gospel to the lost, just like the 72 did. But they're going to go to a far country. And in the midst of it, the message is the suffering servant. How can you Christians bear with so much torture and, and being beaten and, and despised because we follow a suffering servant who bore your transgressions away? So attaining kingdom greatness is measure ourselves against who Jesus is in this. He was greater than all of them and yet became the suffering servant. He bore the cross so that he could carry their sins away. So attain to hope for, reach for greatness, want to be great, and understand what greatness looks like is serving. So Paul says that in Ephesians. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. And then he put a period and stopped writing. Right? Ah, rats. And then he got really hard. He said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's what service looks like. That's what it means to follow a servant. If you're a tyrant in the church, trying to lord it over people, people will not follow. They'll do it begrudgingly. They'll do it out of fear and intimidation, but they won't do it from the love of Jesus Christ. But can you imagine what it's like if we serve each other as, as kingdom greatness dictates here? If we could just love each other and serve each other? Who wouldn't want to be part of that? To know you walk in and you have people just doing anything for you. How can I help you? What do you need? Who wouldn't want to be part of that? That's what it means to follow Jesus, the suffering servant, in the midst of this. This is what true kingdom greatness is. And what we're going to see coming up is the, the picture of that in Jesus going to the cross for us. But as we get to that, as we move into that section, don't forget to look at Jesus heading to the cross, being beaten and, and rejected and tortured and executed and think, that's greatness. It's easy to get lost in the darkness of it. But Luke, who is a very good storyteller, put this here to remind us before we get to that, that's greatness. That's what it means to be great. That's the suffering servant. That's the picture we follow. If he has done this for you, how much more can you do, he do through you? He's borne your sins away. Let's pray. Lord, may we all attain to kingdom greatness. Lord, I pray that you would stir a desire in each and every one of us to be great, to be remembered, to stand at the final judgment and be told, good and faithful servant, Lord, we won't get to sit on, on um, thrones and judge Israel. That's for the apostles. But, Lord, we will be assigned a city. In your millennial kingdom, we will reign with you. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir in us all a desire for gospel kingdom greatness. But, Lord, at the same time, would you correct our definition of greatness? Lord, help us to remember what it is to be great in your kingdom, to serve, to offer to each other, to submit to you, to look to the cross, to see your execution and say that is what it means to be great. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is the lion that sits on the throne. Lord, stir in us a desire for that. Lord, would you grant us holy discontent as we pursue greatness in the world's terms. And Lord, the most important thing we need is that you have prayed for our faith that it may not fail. So Lord, when we turn, and we will turn, when we turn, Lord, give us the wisdom and the care and the, the, the time to strengthen our brothers. Lord, we want these things not for our little kingdom, but for your greater and your more glorious one. Lord, would you open many eyes in the Antelope Valley to the glorious truth of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, highly exalted, and draw them to, to you. We ask these in Christ's name. Amen.